0: Text is chapter 2 of Genesis, the verses 4 through to 17, which we've just read. All of a congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, if I were to take a thread and tie it around a, a pen, I could use that thread to swing the pen around my head. What if I wanted to swing a heavy wooden chair around my head? A thread wouldn't do, I'd need something stronger, maybe a, a rope, even a small steel cable. What about, if I was strong enough, I wanted to do the work of gravity and swing the moon around the planet? What kind of a rope would I need? A thread wouldn't do. A cable wouldn't do. In fact, we would need a cable thicker than the diameter of the earth. But that's just the moon. What about if I wanted to stand on the sun and swing the earth around in its glorious orbit at 107,000 kilometers per hour? That's how fast we're going right now. You know how much force is necessary to keep us in orbit around the sun? A lot. Let's try to imagine it. You know a water bottle, a little plastic water bottle, one liter weighing about one kilo, how much that weighs in your hand? Well, take that water bottle and multiply it by all the grains of sand on every beach in the whole world. That many water bottles. Would that be heavy on your hand? That's how much force is required to keep the earth in orbit around the sun. And you know what the Bible says? The Bible says that Jesus upholds the universe... By the word of his power. Not just the moon, not just the earth around the sun, but trillions upon trillions upon trillions upon trillions upon trillions of stars and planets and heavenly bodies of every type and galaxies and everything that's swirling around in this glorious display of his creative power. That's the Lord Jesus at every moment. By his power, making it all work. And while he's at it, he's also telling every electron in every atom of your body where it has to be at any given moment. What well, we learned last week, a little bit, from Genesis chapter 1, about this home that God created for us, which proclaims his goodness and his love and his Power and his glory God is creator God speaks and things happen God is a God of order God is a God who delights in unity and diversity together real diversity God is almighty God is life God is love God provides God is good and God is to be glorified. That's what we saw last week. As Scripture opened with that glorious, exalted opening of Genesis chapter 1, that exalted prose, as the camera panned out as far as it could to describe to us the beginnings of our cosmos and our world. And now in chapter 2, in the first Toledote, the first account of generations... The camera zooms in. And now we have a, a close-up shot from the wide-angle cosmic. We get to an intimate close-up of man in his home in the Garden of Eden. And today, the Lord teaches us from Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through to 17, that he makes us a home. In which to glorify him and enjoy him forever. Last week we learned that the home that he made tells us about him. And this week we're concentrating on the fact that the home which he made is a place for us to do our job. For us to be what we were created to be. And that is glorifiers. Lovers and worshipers of God. Now we need to get some things straight as we enter into chapter 2. And the first thing that I want to emphasize is that this is not a second creation account. There are some people, some scholars, that say, well, Genesis just is just a patchwork quilt of all kinds of different source documents and different people with different opinions and some guys just kind of stitched it all together, don't expect it all to have any kind of unity or to be coherent. And so Genesis chapter 1 tells one creation story and Genesis 2 just tells a different one and there are conflicting information in these chapters, but that's okay because the Bible is just the result and the product of man's imagination anyway or what man thinks about God. Don't believe people or books that would tell you those lies. All scriptures God breathed. The structure of the book of Genesis is ordained by the Holy Spirit, and it's a beautiful and meaningful structure. We talked a little bit last week about what a Generation is. Chapter 2, verse 4, these are the generations, and I even mentioned the Hebrew word, tolodot. It's hard to translate the exact meaning into English, but the idea is this is what happened afterwards. These are the consequences. This is what falls out. This is the legacy. So if you turn, for instance, to chapter 5, verse 1, you'll see the second. Toledot began. This is the book of the generations of Adam. And so it tells about the legacy and the, the consequences and what happens after Adam. It deals with his descendants and his legacy. If we go to chapter 6 verse 9, then we see uh, these are the generations of Noah. And so it tells a little bit about Noah and the flood and the consequences of what happened after the flood. If we go to chapter 11, verse 27 for a moment, if you just open your Bible to 11, verse 27. Now, these are the generations of Terah. The Bible, the Holy Spirit doesn't think it's too important for us to know too much about Terah, but it wants us to know, the Holy Spirit, he wants us to know what, is the, what fell out, what are the consequences, what is the legacy of Terah, And we get all the descriptions of Abraham and his call and everything that happened afterwards. There are a couple of Toledot which deal with men who fall outside of the covenant community, who are cut off or cut themselves off. So in chapter 25 verse 12, and chapter 36 verse 1, we get the Toledot of Ishmael and of Esau. And those are usually just short descriptions of their descendants. The important story goes with the line, of those who believe, the holy line, the holy seed. And then we get to the very end in chapter 37, verse 2. The the last total begins there, 37, verse 2. And it speaks about these are the generations of Jacob. And it begins with a description of Joseph and his story. So today, we're on the first Tolodot, the first of these ten big sections in Genesis. We've had the introduction to the book. That's Genesis chapter 1. Now here, are, here is the first of the ten sections. and These are the generations. This is the Tolodot, not of a person, but of the heavens and the earth. The heavens and the earth were created. Then what happened? That's the point here. What happened next? What's the story? And our Tolodot begins with a short reprise of day number six, and then continues the story of what happened to the heavens and the earth, focusing on the central character, which is man, male and female. What they did and what they didn't do, and the consequences of it all. Now, As we come to chapter 2, verse 4, Perhaps, children, you will notice there's a difference in how Moses talks about the Lord. In Genesis chapter 1, what name does Moses use all the time for the Lord, for God? It's it's the word God. But then here in chapter 2 verse 4, for the first time, he calls him Lord God. Now, God we know. It's Elohim. It's the Almighty creator. Lord, all in capital letters, is the way in our Bibles that we represent what in Hebrew is the word Yahweh. And Yahweh is the special covenant name of God. It's the name which speaks to us of his intimate relation to man. And so Moses, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is telling us here in verse 4, you know, the heavens and the earth were created by God. You know who God is? He is Lord God. He is God Yahweh. He's not just a mighty, powerful, brute force of power and will in the sky, but he is the creator God who at the same time is the loving God who makes relationships with people, who makes covenants with people. This is the almighty God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ from nothing made the heavens and the earth. As we move on to verse 5 and verse 6, we learn from the scripture that on the day that man was created, there was not yet any work of human cultivation and watering. So the the heavens and the earth, the creation was a, a, a beauty of wild profusion, but it did not yet bear the marks of man's deliberate cultivation and care. When we go out into the forest or the jungle, it's just a delight to see the, the mass of profusion of plants and trees and flowers and insects and, and all the glory of God in creation. And yet there's also something really, really beautiful and special when man comes and puts things in order and develops and imposes a certain direction on the things of creation. It was not yet, says the scripture, a man to work the ground. That's in verse 5. And it's a good thing for there to be a man to work the ground. Man here, speaking about human beings, female and male, it's a good thing when humans shape and direct and channel the energy and beauty of the creation to the greater glory of God. Scripture never describes man as he was created to be As a parasite or a plague or a problem for the planet. On the contrary. God tells us that man, that human beings are royal stewards. They are divine image bearers. We have been created to be head gardeners. To work with honor and respect on the king's property. And then in verse 7. We learned something that we didn't hear about in chapter 1. Chapter 1, we had this exalted, glorious description of man's creation that God said, I will create him in the image of God. What a glorious thing. And then we kind of get a little bit of a... We kind of get checked when we read a further description of that in chapter 2. Because we learn that we're actually formed from the dust of the ground. So there's great glory, there's great honor... But there should also be great humility if we know where we come from. From the dust of the ground. From the earth. God, as it were, forms man with his own hands. It's a process. It's deliberate and it's intimate. With all the trees and the fish and the birds and the animals, God spoke, let it be, and it was. But he takes time To form the human being with his own hands, as it were. And so here we are Adam, the Son of God, part of him from the earth, his body, part of him from the heavens, the very Spirit of God breathed into his nostrils. Not just alive like the animals, but alive as a living image bearer of God. So what's going to happen? What's going to happen now to this product of the heavens and the earth? Well, God puts him in a garden, verse 8. Now, In the ancient Near East, kings would often have their own gardens full of ponds with fish and all kinds of exotic animals and trees with delicious fruits and all kinds of wonderful things. And the ancient word used also in Hebrew to describe these gardens is the word which is the root word for our word paradise. God puts man in a king's garden. He puts him in a paradise. Then we read in verse 9, Out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree. Now, we won't go into all the details here. At a first reading, it might seem like God's making more trees. He he made some earlier in the the creation sequence, and now he's making them again after he's uh, set up the garden. But Hebrew is a very simple language. And without going into all the details, we could also translate this, Out of the ground the Lord had made to spring up every tree. Either way, there's a garden. And look what kind of a garden it is. It is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Now pay attention to that. Pleasant, not just good for food, but pleasant to the sight. This tells us something about our God. Our God delights in beauty. And it's good to think about that. It's pleasant to the sight, and good for food. This garden is a place of beauty and delight in the good things of God. The good things of creation. Sometimes Christians make the mistake. They say, you know what? I, I want to be holy. And, and we think that holiness means that we've got to be as frumpy as we can in our life. That's not what the Bible teaches. It's beauty and delight in a holy life, and a holy creation, in the praise of a holy God. Then we go to the verses 10 through to 14. And the geography of the garden is described as in the east. And as we go through Genesis, that's going to become important, children, the east. We'll come back to that, not in this sermon, but it's going to kind of become a theme over the next few weeks, the east. So perk up your ears when you hear the the direction east. Generally, the garden is in the area which today is more or less Iraq. And it's hard to to tell exactly where it is because maybe the flood changed some of the geography, but it's in that general area. And it's most likely on on a kind of a raised place, a hill or even... A mountain, And perhaps you may be saying, well, where are you getting that from, Pastor? Well, let's turn to Ezekiel chapter 28 for a second. Ezekiel 28. And in Ezekiel 28, the Lord is telling off the king of Tyre who got carried away with his power and his glory and therefore was cast down and humbled. But the Lord, through his prophet uses the analogy of the king of Tyre in his glory being in the Garden of Eden. Now let's listen carefully to some of the things that are described about the Garden of Eden in this little section. Chapter 28 of Ezekiel, we'll start at verse 11. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre. Say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God paradise of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, emerald, carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. So all the precious stones, all the gold that we read about in Genesis chapter 2, they're here. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire you Walked, so this all this analogy about Eden and paradise, which God is applying to the king of Tyre as He tells him off, tells us a few things about Eden that it was possibly a place that was high, a hill, or a mountain. The Garden of God, paradise. If we go to Ecclesiastes chapter two, verse five. The preacher says, I made for myself gardens and parks. And the word there in the scripture is paradise. And planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. And we can turn to Song of Songs, chapter 4, verse 13. Let's just turn there for a second. Song of Songs, 4, verse 13. And it says there, your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates. Do you see the word orchard there? The Hebrew word there in the scripture is paradise. Your shoots are a paradise of pomegranates with all choicest fruits. Henna with nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon. All trees of frankincense, myrrh, aloes, all choice spices. A garden fountain, a well of living water and flowing streams from Lebanon. So this garden is beautiful. It's a king's garden full of life and fruit and color, beauty, order, purpose. And utility and great potential. Because look at those rivers. There are rivers flowing everywhere. And it's hard for us here in St. Albert, in northern, or whatever, in Alberta, I don't know if we're north or south here, but in Alberta, it's hard for us to really clue in here about how important these rivers are. So let me tell you about Manaus. Manaus is a city of more than one million people in the middle of the Amazon. And it cannot be reached by road. No roads to it. Nowadays you can fly, but for, most of its, for much of its existence, it's a place where you have to take boats. You have to use the rivers to get there. And all around Manaus and all the Amazon and all its tributaries and little uh, streams and rivers that flow into it, people use watercraft like highways to go visit each other to go to other villages, to give medical help, to deliver goods and services. Everything is done on the water. And here in the Garden of Eden, there's water everywhere. There are rivers going everywhere. And where do they go? They go to places where there is gold and where there are precious stones. So God places man in a place where they're not just plants and fruits, but also building materials to build gold and precious stones. What's what's the deal here? What does God want from man? Well, the idea is man will be fruitful and multiply, that there will be more and more and more glorious image bearers of God on this planet, and that as the population grows, the garden grows and develops, And becomes a garden city with gold and precious stones and plants. And it grows and grows until the whole earth is cultivated to maximum beauty. With man directing and leading all things and all creatures so that they can glorify God to the max. Man is in no way a parasite or an intruder but a driving force or creation to be what it was created to be. And so when you fix something, or when you fix someone, when you make something, a meal, a bouquet, when you train an animal, when you paint a picture or photograph a landscape, when you work in your garden, when you organize your Tupperware drawer, when you teach your children or your students about God and his world, this is what we were created to do to bring God glory through the creation. And part of bearing the image of God is the fact that we as human beings are creative. We like to use order and creativity to draw out the potential of things so that God gets more and more and more glory. And then we come to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it And keep it. Now these words, the word work, the garden, usually means in the Bible, cultivate. So working land, plowing it up and sowing things. But when the word that we have here in verse 15, the verb work, is together with the verb keep, When those two verbs occur together, then usually they refer either to the Israelites serving God and keeping his commandments or it refers to the priests who are serving or ministering in the temple and keeping or guarding the holy things of the Lord. So let's... Just quickly for a moment, turn to Numbers, chapter 3, verse 7. Numbers, chapter 3, verse 7. And uh, we don't have the Hebrew in front of us, so you're just going to have to believe me that these are the same two verbs here. Numbers, chapter 3, verse 7. Talking about the priests, Aaron and his sons. And it says, they shall keep guard over him. That's the verb keep. And of the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they minister, that's the word serve, at the tabernacle. And there are a bunch of other verses in the scripture that use these same two verbs together. Why am I making a big deal about this? Well, you remember in chapter 1 that the word that the Holy Spirit used to describe the two great lights, the sun and the moon weren't mentioned by name, they were called the two great lights, That word was a special word. It was a word that's used to describe the lights in the tabernacle and in the temple. And now here again in chapter 2, we get more special words. What man is supposed to do in the Garden of Eden is described with two verbs, which is also described later on in Scripture to to, to talk about what the priests do in the tabernacle and in the temple. So God has made and created a cosmic temple. And we can visualize Eden, the garden, as a holy of holies. It's the center of where worship is happening. It's where man must serve, work, and keep. It's where man must minister, worship to the Lord, and guard all for the glory and delight in God and creation. It's a place where later on we find out in chapter 3 where God comes to speak to man. Now we learn from Genesis chapter 2, verse 3 that the day of rest is holy. But as we read through the rest of Genesis chapter 2, we learn that there is no such thing in scripture as the understanding that there's this great, great big divide between. Uh, sacred and secular the days of work and activity are also days of worship and glory and enjoying god everything in the creation is optimized for human flourishing and god takes man and puts him in this beautifully appointed home and he says to him you may surely eat of every tree of the garden isn't that amazing You may surely eat. When you've just renovated the house and everything's perfect and all the walls are painted and all the new furniture's in place and then all of a sudden the little kids come running in from outside with their grubby little hands, what's the first thing you say? Whoa, wipe your feet. Don't touch this. Don't touch that. That's not how God treats us as he places us in this glorious creation. He says, go for it. Enjoy it. Delight in it. You may surely eat of everything. You may delight in my words and in my works. You may eat and drink to the glory of God. For how long? How long was this supposed to last? Well, as we look at verse 17, we understand that this is supposed to go on forever. Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat from the day that you eat of it. You shall surely die So the understanding then is is that if you don't eat of it, you shall surely not die. You can keep on living here and enjoying the things I've made and worshiping me and filling the world with joy and life and light. And that can go on forever. Here is man in that beautiful home God created. Man is a king and man is a priest to God. And we're going to sing about that in hymn 69 after the sermon. God makes us a home in which to glorify him and enjoy him forever. A home in which we can live koram deo. A home in which we can live in the presence of God. So we read this. And we listen to this. And then we ask ourselves, is is this our experience? Is this what we see in our lives today? In our world today? Are we perfect kings and priests to God? Is everything in our cosmic home in this planet, is everything perfectly attuned to God's worship? Is everything kept and ministered and and guarded to be safe from the intrusion of disobedience, disease, depravity, and death? Is everything in our life, is everything in our world developed To the maximum potential of glorifying God. We know the answer, don't we? What God describes here in chapter 2 is not the world we're living in. Why not? Well, let's look again at those last verses. At the last verse, verse 17. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. From the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die you shall surely die. Now the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they have no power in themselves. It's not as though if you ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil it had some kind of poison that killed you. It's just A sacrament here. It's got a sacramental character. It doesn't have inherent power. It represents something. The tree of life represents a fact that God nourishes and sustains us unto eternal life. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil represents another fact that if we will not listen to the word of God, things are going to go very badly. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's placed in that garden, and God says basically to man, you can learn the, the easy way, or you can learn the hard way. You can trust me, you can trust my word, you can trust that I know what is good and what is not good, and you can delight in my will, and you can follow my will, or you can say, no, we decide. We know what's good for us. We decide what's not good for us. That tree, that tree is key, verse 17. And we're going to hear more about that tree, aren't we, children? It's going to be a sad story in chapter 3 when we get there. There's a little bit of foreshadowing here if you're a literature fan. That tree is a blessed tree because it says, Love God. Obey God. Embrace the will of God. It's good. Life is good. And it will be forever. But that tree, that blessed tree, is going to become, through our sin, that damn tree, that tree that brings curse. Because man, and we're going to find out about that, aren't we, in chapter 3. Man is going to say, it matters not how straight the gate, nor how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Man is going to say, I want autonomy. The world will be the way my will says it must be. And how has that worked out for us? children when you say no to your mommy and daddy you say what I want it's not a good idea it's not a good idea and when we as adults say to God no not what you're saying what I want it's not a good idea the whole history of the human race since the fall tells us that it's not a good idea To disobey God because God, his word is life and his will is the only one which is good. And we listen to this description of our home that God made for us. A perfect, beautiful home where everything maxes out to the glory of God. And then we look at the world around us, which is anything but that. What do we need to do? As the scripture comes to us this morning, we need to focus on that tree. The tree is key. That tree, next chapter, is going to bring about sin and disobedience and pain and suffering and brokenness and desolation and death and everything that God made the world not to be. But keep looking, keep looking. Focus on that tree. Because as history moves forward and as the pages of Scripture and the drama of redemption move forward throughout the centuries, another tree comes into focus. A tree which is bare, without limbs, without leaves, without life. A tree of death. And on that dead tree is nailed a lifeless body. You know what? The story doesn't stop there, does it? Praise God. Because it's not just a tree of death. You know who's nailed there? To that tree? The one in whom are hid all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It is the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And whoever is nailed there on that tree is the one who said, I have come to do your will, O God. Not my will, but your will. What happens two days later? On the third day, from the earth on Resurrection Sunday, the last Adam comes out of the ground. The one who sets things right The one who does properly what the first Adam was supposed to do. The first Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Jesus the Christ says to the thief on the cross, Today you will be with me. Where? In paradise. Brings us back. Brings us back home. He says to the church in Revelation... To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Jesus Christ is the one who brings us back to the garden, but not just back, not back to Eden. To the copy of the heavenly holy of holies. But he brings us into the very cosmic holy of holies itself. And as he brings us into the very throne room of God, the God of the universe and the cherubim are the guardians of God's holiness. And they say, whoa, sinners can't come in here. And Jesus says, they're with me. No longer condemn sinners, but beloved children or that new and living way with God boldness, we enter behind the curtain and come into the very presence of God. This is the Jesus Christ who said, Behold, I go to prepare a place for you. Here we are. We're sitting in the smoking ruins of creation. We hit the nuclear option with our sin and our disobedience. And everything's in ruins. Everything's smoking. Everything's in piles of rubble. And the Lord Jesus comes to us, the last Adam, he comes to us with this book. And he shows us the original plan in chapter 2, this is what it was supposed to look like before you guys ruined it. And then the rest of the gospel, the rest of the scripture tells us, you know what? It was that good, but it's going to be even better. Paradise restored is going to be even more glorious. What's end. By looking quickly at Revelation chapter 21, chapter 22. What do we see? Where are we heading? Where are we going? We're heading back to the cosmic king's garden where God is dwelling again with man. 21 of Revelation, verse 3 Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, he will dwell with them, they will be his people. And in verse 5, Behold, the one who seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And what do we see in the description of the new heavens and the new earth? We see rivers and trees of life and fruit and precious stones and gold. Not just in a little garden in the middle of the, the planet somewhere, but in this massive garden city which covers the entire world that's our new home that's what Jesus is preparing for us chapter 22 verse 3 no longer will there be anything accursed but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him will be home again and we will be able to glorify him and enjoy him worship him and enjoy him forever who is this true for? Who is this a promise for? Children, look at verse 4 of chapter 22 of Revelation. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Children, what do you have on your forehead? Do you have something? When you were a little baby, you don't remember. For many of you, you don't remember. Some of you, you do, because you are older. But for many of you, you were a little baby, and your mummy and daddy brought you to the front, and the minister put water on your head. And the Lord God said, I promise to be your God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I promise to take away all your sins, and I promise to make the world perfect for you to live in with me so believe that amen